Father, it is because of Jesus Christ the crucified that we can gather this morning. It's under him that we gather. It's because of him that we gather. And it is with his name that we will scatter when we leave today to believe it, to commend it with our lives and our love, and to speak it uh, to the lost. And it's also this Jesus and him crucified that causes us not only to gather together, but to gather ourselves and our resources and our energy and our dreams all up for the way that you may use us to reach the very ends of the earth with this message. We pray that you would advance that purpose in us just a little bit by your spirit through the preaching of your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Acts. The book of Acts will be in chapters 13 and 14 this morning. We'll begin just by reading the first three verses of Acts 13, and we'll, we'll make our way around these two chapters a bit across, across the morning. Well, in our first week in this series, we explored the, the where of the church's great commission, her mission, and following Jesus to the end of the earth, the where is the end of the earth. And last week, we explored the, the what, the what of the gospel, what it is that we, we have. And this morning, we come to the who, and we'll come at the question of the who from a couple angles. Let's begin with these first three verses. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Roles, relationships, and responsibilities. Understanding these is critically important when you're setting up a tent. Some of our children's worst memories of being our children, or at least my children, are when Christy and I tried to set up an eight-person Kingdom Eight tent uh, in the rain several years back, uh, an achievement of Craigslist that I had won. And when I met the, the nice couple in the parking lot an hour away to buy this five, six hundred dollar tent for $150, they said, it's in great shape. And I said, well, that's just wonderful because I had been at REI and looking at this tent and dreaming about camping with my family and then got on my phone and found this tent exactly like it on Craigslist for a wonderful price. My job, my job was to secure the tent. I secured a tent. And when we got that thing out in the rain as the kids were in the, in the car and it was swinging around and the poles were mangled and bent... We ended up having to tether the thing to a tree just to keep it from falling, falling over. We all got in the, in the tent. I didn't quite do my, my job. Roles, relationships, and responsibilities are important when you're setting up a tent. They're important when you're running a home. They're important when you're setting up a business. They're important when you're running a play on the field. The military understands the importance of roles, responsibilities, and relationships. The higher the cost, the higher the stakes, the more precious the goal, the more important it is to get roles, relationships, and responsibilities just right. Just right. Well, all three are crucial for the church's global 
mission. The work of global missions is the church's, it is our family business, we could call it. We might think, oh, this is easy. A missionary is a missionary, right? Well, you don't have to listen long to realize that the language of the church's mission is not always a little confused. You may be familiar with terms like mission or missions or missionary or missional or on mission. And each of those has a kind of a different, a different meaning, some having to do with the church's global purposes, some maybe more local, some personal, some corporate as a church. And even if you listen carefully enough, each of those words may be understood differently and used differently by different people or different traditions. Well, what is a missionary? Well, that's an important question. What, aren't we all missionaries? Maybe you've heard that before. We're all missionaries. Is that true? Who decides what a missionary is? Is it based on a sense of individual calling? Is it required that an agency be involved? Who else does it involve? And what are missionaries exactly to do? Should we even be asking that question if someone goes cross-culturally and they're they're compelled by good purposes motivated by Bible passages, is whatever they might do in a cross-cultural environment in connection with the name of Jesus, missions. As missions work broad enough to include every good thing the church might do in a foreign field, or as missions work only limited to the evangelization of individuals and the making of individual disciples, uh, conversion, our answers direct our dreams. They direct our budgets. They direct our precious and important and deepest prayers and plans. Well, one of the reasons the Spirit inspired this book that we're in in these four weeks is to show us what this stuff looks like. It's to clarify roles and relationships and responsibilities. Who does what? You think of Acts 1.8, which is the table of contents for the book. You will receive power, Jesus says, When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the the end of the earth. Here we have got Jesus, we've got the Holy Spirit, we've got disciples, and then we've got a roadmap, place to go. We've explored a little bit of of what it is that we carry with ourselves, what our message is, what it means to be a witness. The book of Acts is the Spirit-inspired account of Jesus' work to build his church after his ascension. The Spirit-inspired account of Jesus' continuing work in the world through his Spirit, through his church, as his church bears witness to his name and his resurrection to the ends of the earth. So we're in the right book. We're also in the right chapters for the particular set of questions that I put before you. Questions that we really should be able to answer as a church, that I need to be able to answer, that leaders need to be able to to answer. This set of two chapters is unique. It, It represents the first missionary journey out and back and the first sent missionaries, the first sending church. Meet, friends, the church at Antioch, the mother church, the base camp for three missionary journeys. The church at Antioch is the fruit of the church's persecution. Flip with me over to chapter 11. It's the fruit of the church's persecution. This is how things things got going. In chapter 11, the gospel had finally reached the Gentiles. We see the account start in verse 19. Now those who were 
scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and and Antioch, that's where we're going to end up, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So they were to start in Jerusalem with Jews and then work out. But there were some of them, verse 20, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. So now the gospel breaks into the Gentiles. Verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Jesus' roadmap, his table of contents, was being unfolded before them, and in their bearing witness, having been forced out by, by persecution. Now Hellenists were, were listening, and so began the church at Antioch. You can flip back to chapter 13. People were getting saved. Barnabas went after Paul and brought him to Antioch, and the two spent, it says, a year teaching and meeting with that church. So some in Antioch believed, who were Gentiles, and the church of Jerusalem was sending folks. Barnabas went. He went and got Paul. They came back, and they put down for a year, and they taught the church, and they built the church up, and they strengthened the church. And as we'll see, they appointed elders for the church, developed leaders. This is where disciples were first called, we're told, Christians. Because as that church matured under the teaching of the apostles, a different way of life developed that did not fit the categories of the culture around them. The many diverse ways of living under very diverse headers, for it was a diverse area. No, the church was itself a new community, a different kind of people. And they were given a name, call them Christians. Christians. By the time we get to chapter 13, we have leaders appointed. Barnabas is a Levite, Simeon, an African, Lucius, a North African, Menean, an elite, probably educated. He was a friend of Herod, an insider with the, the elite. Saul, Roman citizen, we know about him. Paul, a church on earth, even whose leadership reflected the church in heaven. How beautiful is that? We can pray for it. The church at Antioch was the fruit of the church's persecution, Jesus driving his people out with his name. The church at Antioch is also the fountainhead of the church's mission. As the morning unfolds, we'll get different parts of the story, taking us to as many, although I won't name them all, as 13 different locations in these two chapters. They sailed here, they got off here, they moved here, they stayed here, they got up and they left. And then they sailed here, then they got up here, they got stoned there. That's the getting stoned with stones. Taking as many as 13 locations and 23 stops, I count in and out in this out and back mission from Antioch. A journey bustling with mission activity and various responses and confirming and revealing a pattern for the New, Church, New Testament church's mission, even for us today. Luke, Luke is describing what happens, but in a way that is prescriptive. And we see confirmed in our letters we're going to come at this passage with four questions today, so we can, we can call this four questions for the family business, four questions to get us all on the same page, four, four questions so that while we all may be doing different things, and we'll see that the church's global mission is the whole church's task, four questions that if we can all answer them together, it'll add energy and vitality and joy, and we pray reach to the mission. Here they are. 
Who sends missionaries? Whom do we send as missionaries? To whom do we send missionaries? And uh, I couldn't make this a who. Uh, What do we send missionaries to do? So who sends missionaries? Whom do we send as missionaries? To whom do we send missionaries? And what do we send missionaries to do? And that last one is really important, isn't it? We want to be on the same page as to what we're sending missionaries out to do. What you might, what God might set you apart for us to send out to do. And you can see why this would direct our, our dreams and our prayers and our plans and our, our budgets. Today's not so much about what supported missionaries are, are doing or, or have been doing, but about what the Bible says. So we're looking down, we're trying to listen, we're putting our ear to the text to see if we can't, we can't hear what's there, and this will serve us. First question, which will be the longest of the four? It's always good to tell you that. Who sends missionaries? Who sends missionaries? This question assumes that missionaries are, are sent. Now, that's important. Uh, that's what missionary means. Sent one. Let's follow the history of the, the language of missionary. Missions isn't a term that's in the Bible. We, we get the language of missions and missionary from a Latin translation, a Latin word, missio, Translating sent or send, sent one, that word group, apostolos, apostolane in the Greek, sent, sent ones. It entails a, not only a going, but if a missionary in the language of missions comes from sent, those who go are those who are in the first place sent to go. Verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting this church at Antioch, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, this church confirmed what they either received by a speaking prophet or intuited. We don't know precisely how it came. But after fasting and praying, which was a part of this process, they, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. So being sent out, verse 4, sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, and they are off. Well, who's the sender? Well, the first sender we see here is clearly the Holy Spirit, and this reminds us that this work that we are about, friends, is no mere human endeavor, and isn't that good to know? And isn't that important to remind ourselves uh, the work of missions does not begin, it does not advance, and it will not end on the basis of human ambition or designs. It's, it's the work of our triune God, the Father who predestined all of this, who, who sends the Son, who achieves salvation, who goes to the cross to purchase for himself men and women from every tribe and language and nation so that God can offer forgiveness and accept us into his presence And say, not guilty, because the guilt has been taken by his son. The son is sent, and he he comes. And the son who died sends with the father the spirit. And the spirit who sets apart some, apparently, for special service. In this case, Paul, who is called on the road to Damascus, and set apart and given a task. And Barnabas had received a prior calling as well, we may presume. So the church can shape and evaluate and launch its missionaries, but the Spirit ultimately is the one behind those who are called and sent. But there's another sender. It's the church. 
Missionaries are sent by the Holy Spirit, we could say, through the church. The church releases them as the Spirit sends them. And it's okay to say the church sends them so long as we don't understand ourselves to be doing that on an island. We can think of this like we think of the appointment of elders and and deacons in the book of Acts. We see that the Holy Spirit made you overseers. Paul will say, but Ephesians will tell us that God gives the gifts to his church that are its pastors and teachers, its, its leaders. So the church's job is to identify and to qualify and to unify the church around these, these leaders. But there's a clear process involved so that we can say that the church appoints her leaders. And yet when they're appointed, last week when we laid hands on Chris Fraley, we prayed for him. We did what we, see, what we see at the end of our passage this morning. We can say when we have done due diligence and staring at the scriptures and in praying and in seeking to understand his qualification and then together entrusting him with the responsibility of biblical eldership. We can say, Chris, the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. He has done this. We have not ultimately, though we may have aspired and it's a noble thing, We do not thrust ourselves or manipulate ourselves or push ourselves, and we do not pull each other and manipulate one another into these roles. We labor to be spirit-led by the word, and when we've done that, we can say the Holy Spirit has led led us in it. Well, same with missionaries. The church has a crucial role to play in God's global mission as his sender by the Spirit. Now, this helps us avoid two really important two really important ditches it helps us avoid the ditch of individualism in missions you know if you're on a mission and you're driving and you end up in a ditch the mission is compromised until you're out of the ditch well this is a, this is a ditch it's between me and god where local churches are the mere funding source for the individuals call and mission missions websites that speak about calling and speak to the reader on the page about their personal calling to the nations but with no reference to the church subtly go dangerously wrong and into the ditch if there's not more to the story than what we read on that site i have a friend in a foreign enclosed land he tells me that from time to time Someone will contact him wanting to get together. Uh, God sent me here, he'll be told. This is not uncommon in the world of foreign missions. God sent me here and this is what I'm here to do. I don't know what I'm doing, he'll often say. Or she'll often say, can you help me? But they have no sending church. They may, not have, they may have a thousand ties to a thousand churches back in the States. But they're there alone sent on a mission, a personal mission from God. They're there more or less alone and don't really know what to do. It doesn't take long until they discover that God is actually leading them somewhere else. (laughs) It is not an uncommon story in his experience. He doesn't take them seriously. He can't afford to. He's sent there by a church. He's on a mission. He has limited time. He doesn't take them seriously because they don't take the church seriously. They didn't take the church seriously in their understanding of their own call which means the target they're trying to hit, they also won't take seriously if they acknowledge it at all, namely the establishment of churches. Corresponding with him a little bit more, he wrote this. 
I think the main wrong-headed approach I encounter is this desire for movements. If you get into the missions field, you'll encounter this language of movement a lot. Movements. He says, I was in a workshop a couple of years ago whose end was to equip missionaries to start movements, specifically disciple-making movements. We broke into small groups to discuss some of these principles further. We were tasked to start from the end goal of our work here and then work backwards each step, and that would lead to our goal until we arrive where we're at today. That would give us then a game plan for how to move forward. When we started the discussion, our group leader asked us, what is the goal? Asking missionaries, what is the goal? What are we shooting for? One guy answered, we are looking for movement. That's what we want, movements. The rest of the group agreed. And he says, I love my friend. I wish you could know him. I sat there staring at them. (laughs) I was definitely the odd man out. I pushed back that our end goal had to be healthy churches that can reproduce themselves. Yes, there should be in our definition of a healthy church an element of reproduction or movement, if you will, so that the, the work continues after we leave. But our main goal cannot be merely rapid reproduction or movement or the creation of mere disciples. He is exactly right. He is exactly the kind of guy we need on the field. And we have men and women like this certainly on on the field who are precious to us. But I offer you his his insight. The, The work of missions, like anyone's field, is a field with categories and patterns and trends and evolution and movement. And the the best thing for us to do on a regular basis is to drop our anchor back in the text to make sure we remember who sends. What missionaries are to do will get there and where they, are, where they are sent. We have the ditch of individualism. A person may sense a call. A person may have a desire. A person may have a plan. But that does not require local congregations to commit to them. Money forever. You don't get pay for life because you're excited and willing. And this protects us from the ditch of individualism in missions. A mission compromising ditch. It also helps us avoid the ditch of institutionalism in missions. This church-centered vision helps us avoid the ditch of institutionalism in missions, where missions is the work of agencies and local churches are the funding source, subcontracting out wholesale, the sending, the accountability, and the, the handling of the missionary task. And this can take on various forms. One example looks like a missionary who is all in with an agency, but not with any church. And maybe there are ties to a dozen or two dozen churches, but it's, and though they would never say it and may not think it, it's a merely professional relationship. Because when support from one church is lost, coming in from an email, the difficulty experienced is not one that is relational or one that is spiritual, but one that is monetary and financial. Another example of institutionalism looks like denominational programs that can be super helpful. God is used greatly, but we have to be careful. Where a denomination, for purposes of efficiency and cooperation, takes on the role that belongs to the church. A denomination is not a church. So that the missionary belongs to the denomination's sending agency, but loses its connection to any particular church. And the churches end up contributing some giant to some giant fund without connection to the missionaries themselves. There are ways to make up for this and those, those uh, arrangements. Uh, but there is a ditch, 
a dangerous ditch of institutionalism. The church subcontracting out wholesale the missionary task. Missions history doesn't help us here. If you read missions history, it's the history of individuals and the history of societies. Where is the local church? Well, it's harder to trace that back historically. It's harder to follow those stories, maybe even a little less exciting. But the work of missions is the work of the church. So what does this mean practically? Is it okay for someone to feel a sense of personal call to the mission field? Yes and amen. But that is not determinative, and it doesn't obligate local churches to support them, no matter how beloved they may be. Is it okay for churches to partner with third parties like mission agencies? Or should it be DIY missions? You know, technology and the internet and travel has made a lot of things possible that were not possible decades and certainly centuries ago. I thank God for YouTube. I thank God for YouTube yesterday because... When my lawnmower stopped working, when I decided to risk it and run over that little pile of mulch, I went inside and I sat on the stairs and I got out my phone and I started flipping around and I found a way to fix my lawnmower. I can do a lot of things with YouTube. There's a temptation on the part of pastors to overstate the authority and the role of the local church and to criticize agencies for the ways they are involved in decisions on the field. You may have heard this stuff, you may not have, but it does happen where a local church and a pastor and a leader uh, sidelines and criticizes and puts to the periphery, if doesn't write out of the story altogether, the role of third parties or agencies. There is a corresponding temptation on the part of agencies to justify their existence, perhaps in the face of such criticism, by minimizing the centrality of the local church. Frankly, local churches are clumsy. Friends, we're clumsy. Your leaders are clumsy. You know it. We lead you. Um, Local churches are filled with folks developing our theology and our practice, and we're wonky, and we're sinners, and and agencies, uh, no doubt, lots of parachurch organizations can get a little tired of the local, local church. It's good to know ourselves, our strengths and our, our weaknesses. Let's get to that in a moment. So let's talk about agencies. I can't imagine, I told this to a friend in the last day, I don't think I'll ever have a chance to talk about agencies in a sermon again. So let's do it. Let's talk about agencies. <laughs> uh, but let's do this under two headers, the why and the how. Why partner with agencies? Why partner with agencies? I have four answers. You ready? Agencies serve the church's mission. They'll all start that way. That's a really important way to start these sentences. Agencies serve the church's mission by leveraging her assets for the reach of her mission. The apostle Paul acted himself like an agency director of sorts. He had various co-workers. He gave directions and ran logistics at the end of Romans and 2 Timothy. We get a variety of these instructions. You move here, go here. So-and-so came here. Thank him for that. He's an apostle, so his prerogative is unique, and yet we can see that there's a practical place for a third party outside the church doing some of the logistics in the complex mission that is a complex world. So agencies serve the church's mission by leveraging her assets for the church's mission. She also serves the church's mission by resourcing the church with with their accumulated wisdom and expertise, financial, cultural, religious, travel, political wisdom and expertise. I have a confession to make to you. 
when preparing a sermon, I do not do all of my own archaeological digging. I don't. <laughs> I, I know where to go. Uh, there are trusted commentators, and I read widely, uh, sometimes as many as a dozen commentaries, so I can see the panorama of the, the issues that are, are involved. just helps to fill the data and give me some texture and some depth. So when I'm reading the scripture, I don't have the whole Bible and every verse in mind when I read a passage, but a, a commentator can point me here and here and here, and I think, oh, that's right. Uh, it's smart. The, the use of helps, well, an agency is a, is a resourcing help. Agencies also serve the church's mission by connecting churches with one another to work out the New Testament's church partnership vision and by connecting missionaries to one another. They help churches of like mind partner in their common mission. They help our partners on the field know who is around them. That missionary is with this agency or that agency. Those are the issues going on there. This is our common ground here. And you're not starting from zero with everyone. They can coordinate. And in all these ways, agencies served the church's mission. Here's a key word. By facilitating the church's missionary aims and activities. They facilitate. That's the way to think. Leverager, resourcer, connector, and in all this, a facilitator. Agencies are critical, often mission critical. Sending agencies are in the sending business, and we thank God for them. And it's important to say that they are not the business owners. That's the church. And here's what this means, heritage. The church, this church, needs to own the work. There's no such thing as mere check writing, where we allocate funds and blindly send them off to be spent by those in the global missions business without our vested ongoing interest and partnership. This is our mission. And by church, I mean those members that have covenanted here. I am not talking about those of you who are regularly attending, but have not covenanted. We invite your participation and as much as you want to do that, but this is not your responsibility. You haven't signed up for it. Well, if the church needs to own this, then how can a church know when a partnership with an agency or a third party is appropriate? Because there are uh, thousands out there. We've looked at the why of agencies, now the how of the partnership. Two words, two words, compatibility and competency. Compatibility, theological compatibility. We as the church are responsible for the mission and we are accountable for the theology and the practice of the missionaries and to the extent to which an agency is directing the theology and practice, we're accountable for the theology and the practice of the agencies that we partner with. How does this agency understand how conversion happens? The work of the spirit, the necessity of conscious faith. Are they decisionists? How do they understand when to recognize a conversion? What a church is, we'll get to that in a moment. In some cases, an agency may be broader theologically than a partnering church, but allow for flexibility with its missionaries on the field as they are matched with churches back home. And an agency that understands the church's role will build its model out to accommodate differentiation in the churches with whom they partner. This theological evaluation should be ongoing. 
A church who is paying a missionary or an agency should track with their theological and missiological development. Not every member can do this equally, but this is our responsibility. Individuals and agencies change over time, just like churches and Christians do. Theological compatibility. There's ecclesiological incompatibility. That word ecclesiology comes from the word church in the New Testament, ecclesia. Do they agree? Do we agree on the role of the church, on what a church actually is in principle and in how that will get worked out specifically? And then there's strategic compatibility. Are we agreed about the same type of work we're going to do together? And is there compatibility in our timelines and approaches? Often enough, churches just consider the strategic part. You know, it's taking us cross-cultural, and it's, it's a compelling website and video and vision and, and personality. But the theological and the ecclesiological must come first, then the strategic. That's compatibility. This feels heady, doesn't it? This is so important, though. Definitions are so important. Some of our New Testament letters are heady, so some sermons can be. Compatibility. Competency, then. Churches have different competencies, Does this agency have the competencies that we need? Can they get us the rest of the way? So who sends missionaries? The Holy Spirit sends missionaries through the church. And third parties come alongside as facilitators of the church's missionary aims and activities. I think that's a nice way to tie that up. That's the first point. All right, second question. Whom do we send as missionaries? Turn back to chapter 11, verse 19. In chapter 13, we saw the church at Antioch stocked with leaders. Paul and Barnabas sent out. But who were Paul and Barnabas to the church? Well, you remember how Barnabas arrived at Antioch. We saw, now we'll pick up in verse 23. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them, this church, all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Immediately, the church is established and he's warning them, this is hard. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord, even as he's telling them how hard it is. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. I need some help. And when he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. You see what happens there. Discipleship, a year, pouring in, staying, such that the church matured, that they received their own name in the community. They were warned about how hard this is, and they were called up to its difficulty These men were anchored in the church. They were teaching in the church. Whom do we send as missionaries? We send those, the kind of people we know. These these are not strangers to us. We send the kind of people who are fruitful. We send the kind of people that are sound, doctrinally sound. They're theological, biblical leaders, not merely warm-hearted, good, sacrificial people who love missions. Theological leaders. Leaders, how do we translate this into a process? This is all kind of spamming this for a, a kind of an inferential process. In this case, Paul and Barnabas were 
ready-made leaders, one of them an apostle. Well, here are six steps, and we could hang Bible verses across these. I'll grab a few from our text. First, we identify. We identify those whom we might send out. These guys were known. Second, we prepare. There's theological development. In this case, these were teachers of the word. Our missionaries that we send out should be teaching and capable to teach. Third, we qualify them. We're talking elder-level qualifications. As we'll see, missionaries are involved in the raising up and the appointing of the church's leaders. Fourth, we confirm together. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 3, it became clear in the context of worship and fasting that they were to set these men apart and they, they took time to fast and to pray before laying their hands on them. And if we were to read ahead in chapter 14, verse 26, before coming home, we see a fifth step would be to commend them. So to identify, prepare, qualify, confirm, commend. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, back home, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. They were commended to the grace of God and sent out. And then sixth, we account for them. Even a verse later at the end of our passage. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, when they came back home at Antioch, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. This is like a missionary report coming home. Here is an account of what God did. There's accountability, at least in this positive sense, of sharing details of the fruitfulness. Paul would go out twice more from this same church. Well, this is a way to make sure we send out known, faithful, and sound people. And get ready for this to hurt, friends. And some of you know this. I'm sure you noticed that Paul and Barnabas made up 40% of this new church's leadership team, those that had spoken and preached and taught the word. You have had teachers and preachers leave this church. And I have known teachers and preachers who have left me for the cause. But take note that a pattern established in Antioch is for the church to send her best. The Spirit set apart two of the best. And of course, we all know about that as a church over and again. Who sends missionaries? Whom do we send as missionaries? Now, third, to whom do we send missionaries? And this is a bit of a sweep from chapter 13 to 14. To the end of the earth, we found that out first week with the where, but we can give a little bit of detail to it here. Here's how that looked for the church at Antioch. To whom did they send their missionaries? First, the Antioch church sent their missionaries to distant peoples. They were sent out, away, across geographical, cultural, at times linguistic barriers. In chapter 14, (laughs) Paul's preaching, and there appears to be a wonderful response. Uh, It appears that conversion is happening. No, they thought they were gods. So they're trying to worship them. 
and they're bringing sacrifices. And when Paul finds out, he's horrified. That is not what he was trying to bring about. There are linguistic barriers that have to be crossed. Sent to distant peoples, they're sent to, to different peoples. In chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are with a Jewish audience, and he addresses them. Men of Israel who fear God, listen. He recounts the Bible's story. We bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, he's fulfilled by raising Jesus from the dead. Hooks the resurrection right into the Bible's Old Testament story. And he quotes the Old Testament extensively. But then in chapter 14, he's before a pagan audience. This is that place where he performs a miracle. He's preaching. They worship him as they would worship a god. The response is in that way surprising. Paul then preaches, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. He satisfied your hearts with the food and gladness. Even with these words, we read, they scarcely restrained the peoples from offering sacrifice. So with these two audiences, these different kinds of people, Paul starts in different places, one in the Old Testament and the next in long generations and how God sends the rain and your common experience of his goodness. But he ends in the same place with Jesus and a call to repentance and to faith. And so this is why the job of a missionary is intellectually rigorous. I grew up in this culture. The missionary not only has to know the scriptures, he or she or the couple has to learn their audience. Paul was a student of his hearers. We send our missionaries to distant peoples and to different kinds of peoples and even to dangerous peoples theologically dangerous. In chapter 13, Paul meets a false teacher, uh, and the Jews would stir up uh, the Gentiles against Paul to lead to physical danger. On the theological front, Paul has to confront this man. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? There's courageous confrontation going on on these pages. And then there's stonings going on. In two chapters, plenty of danger. The mission will require courage, sacrifice. The mission may require the lives of those who go. Maybe yours, but we go. Finally and critically, fourth question. What, what do we send missionaries to do? What do we send missionaries to do? What would, set, what would seem like a question we should have pretty much nailed down, right? Turn with me to chapter 14, verse 19. I want you to listen to what Paul and Barnabas do. What is their work? This is very clarifying for us. 
But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having, this is a different Antioch, by the way, they're, they're at an Antioch, and they will return home to Antioch. Let me offer that. Verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. They were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Poseidon and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word to Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they'd arrived and gathered the church together, there they are back again. They declared all that God had done with them and how he'd opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. So what do missionaries do? By way of spirit-inspired pattern given to us by Luke on the page, what did Paul and Barnabas be? What were they sent out to do? And what did they come home to report? Well, missionaries make disciples. Missionaries plant churches and they strengthen churches to do the same. Three things. They make disciples through the preaching of the gospel. They plant churches, which is why Jesus said, make disciples, baptizing them, that public sign of identification with Jesus and his people. They plant churches. And three, they strengthen churches to do the same. They taught and they strengthened and they stayed and they spent no little time and they appointed elders in the churches. This is the stuff of their return home trip slideshow. And we'll read a read through chapter 13 and 14. We would read more of the, the same, preaching, proclaiming, speaking the word, the word spreading, men and women believing, some rejecting, churches being formed and then those churches being strengthened in the word, just like Antioch was, to then multiply the mission. The multiplication happens through the establishment of the healthy church. To put a sharp point on this, all missions endeavors must take all three into account in their strategy. A missionary is one who is sent by the church to do this work or to directly support this work. Paul had his mail carriers his liaisons, his Epaphras and Epaphroditus and Tychicus and Tertius. And we have our missionary pilots, don't we? To do the work or directly support the work. Christians may do other things in other parts of the world that are done with Christian motives and that bring glory to God that are not the work of missions that flow immediately from this great commission from Jesus. And I can say that because of specific commands in Scripture and because of the pattern that we've seen on the page. This is what they did. Let me offer some qualifications at this point. These things do not necessarily or usually happen rapidly. 
Certainly, if the people doesn't have a Bible, we're in for a long haul. Maturity does not happen rapidly in a church. The, the creation of a Christian and then the development of that believer to be mature, to be an elder, to then teach, does not always happen rapidly. These things do not necessarily or usually happen evenly. A missionary will give himself to one thing, perhaps, in greater degree. But again, all three must be a part of a coherent strategy. And even over time, a missionary may spend more and less time with more and less focus on a different part of this three-pronged strategy. And these things do not necessarily or usually happen easily or straightforwardly. Patience and flexibility are required. But these things do happen eventually. Note the word fulfilled. Paul had fulfilled his mission. Eventually, maybe not necessarily even in one's lifetime, this happens. Hear how Paul spoke in Romans 15. By the power of signs and wonders and by the power of the Spirit of God, he says, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Paul could go to a place, make disciples, establish a church, strengthen it, and get out and say, I'm done. Literally, I'm done. He doesn't leave a mission agency. He doesn't stay and pastor the thing for decades. He's done. He's moving on to take the gospel where it's not, it's not known. And that church can replicate itself. Does this mean that every missionary should plan in short order to pick up and leave? No, it does not. Does it mean that every missionary who understands the task and every church that sends missionaries that understands its task is praying so that they can leave, is planning and strategizing in such a way that they can leave, even if through tears? Hudson Taylor famously said, missionaries are the scaffolding on a building, necessary but in due time, no longer essential. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, what did they do? Then they committed them to the Lord. They entrusted a church now established with the word and with its leaders with word in hand. They entrusted that church to the Lord and the Lord will get his work done. So friends, what does all this mean for us? What does all this mean for us? Ownership. We need to own the mission, the end of the earth mission. And that's we not a team that we delegate ownership out to, not a committee or a group of leaders that get it done for us. No, we may delegate out to leaders to lead us in the mission, but the mission is our mission as a church. And like with any family business, not everyone will play the same role, but everyone has a role to play at a very minimum, urgent prayer. So ownership. Secondly, evaluation. We need to be able to give an account for all of the monetary partnership commitments that we engage in. Every single one before the Lord and leaders before you for those commitments. 
and that is an ongoing evaluation. Missionaries, and we need to encourage our missionaries to do this, need to evaluate their own work in light of the scripture's aims. Same with agencies. Agencies can evaluate how their model enhances the church's role or may inadvertently eclipse the church's role. So that's ownership, that's evaluation, and dreaming. Now that we're clear on what it is we're to do, we're in all the better place to dream, are we not? Are you not in a better place to dream having watched Paul and Barnabas go out and come back and give a praise report? Dreaming. So get to dreaming yourself. Get to dreaming about your sons and daughters. And church, let's get dreaming together about what God might do. Empowered by the Spirit, filled with confidence because of what we see in the Scripture, and yes, strengthened by all that we have heard that God has done through those that have been sent out through our church and continually strengthened by hearing all that God continues to do even now at even the very edges of the earth through some of the missionaries that we support. Let's dream and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Acts, where Jesus' continuing mission is recorded for us. And we pray that as Luke has given this to us as a pattern, that we might find ourselves busy about it together, owning the work, owning our missionaries, accounting for the flock, accounting for the mission, accounting for the gospel that goes out. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things and for his sake. Amen.